I'm excited to continue this series, and I don't know about you, but yesterday, um, if you were anywhere near an electronic device, um, there were some really powerful um, remembrances of September 11th. And I don't know if it's the idea of the 20-year anniversary that just hit harder, you know, the idea of, of two decades. I, I think for me yesterday hit harder because of how I feel like September 12th and the days and weeks and months that followed were the most united I've ever felt. And I feel like the last 18 months is about the most divided I feel like we've been that made it feel like a lifetime ago. But one of the things this week that I was reminded that I haven't thought about in a long time was about a week and a half after those tragic events on September 11th, President George W. Bush spoke to a joint session of Congress and to the rest of the world. And I don't know how you track this stuff statistically, but I just wonder if there's ever been a presidential address that's ever been heard by more people than that address on September 20th, 2001. But there was a specific line that he said in that speech that was sort of the the warning and meant to be the hope that was heard around the world. He said the phrase, the hour is coming. The hour is coming. The hour is coming when America will act And the world will hear it, is what he said. And it was this idea of of this phrase whispers a hope of something coming. Right? That, That where we are right now isn't the end of the story. Those words offer hope. And his phrase, the hour is coming when America will act. There's been a lot of debate about whether we acted the right way. But here's what you can't deny. The phrase, the hour is coming, signals a profound hope. And I almost wonder if we could, again, pull a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure time machine, hop in a a little phone booth. I know y'all don't know what a phone booth is, don't worry about it. And go backwards in time. And we could show up in Samaria. I just wonder... If during the time of John chapter 5, I wonder if the headline in Samaria would have read, the hour is coming and is now here. We're not waiting anymore. And what I think is this promise that the hour is coming has now been fulfilled. We're living in the age This side of the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're living in the days of manifest hope, of fulfilled hope. And what I believe Jesus wants for each of us today is don't live in the hope of what's already arrived. We're not waiting. (laughs) The hour has come and is now here. So let's grab our Bibles this morning. And let's hold them up in the air and say our creed together before we jump in, back into John chapter 4 together this morning. Let's hold them up in the air. Let's declare this together with some passion and conviction this morning. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me 
for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you. Please turn back to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, where we'll be for the, where we were last week and we'll be uh, for the next several weeks. John chapter 4. This idea that transformation is coming. Hope is going to be fulfilled. We're talking about worship transformed. And what, what I'll tell you is this. I've had a lot of people tell me lately they can't get, they can't wait for things to get back to normal. And when everybody has said that to me, I've tried to offer caution and refocus of number one, normal's overrated. And number two, I think we're a ways away from that. Right? And I keep telling people to dial down the desire for normal with my mouth, but my heart keeps longing for normal. I'll be, I'll be honest with you, and I don't use this word lightly. Some of you know my, my past and my history. When this Delta variant started spreading everywhere the beginning of August, I legitimately faced some depression. I'm like, what? This blankety blank thing has mutated? <laughs> I didn't have a very Christ-like response. I'm just telling you. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I've never hated the word Delta before, but I hate it now. Fly the friendly skies. No, like... What are you, are you kidding me? I, I think normal's overrated. And I think we're a ways from it. But in the economy of Jesus, he doesn't say, hey, long for normal. He says, hey, I want to fulfill your better. I want to take you to a greater thing than you've ever imagined for yourself. And that's the message of John chapter 4 where uh, verse 23 is where we focused last week. It's where we'll park for most of our time together this week, although we will zoom out a little. But here's the, the, the heart of our text for these several weeks together. The hour is coming and is now here. And that, that new hour is here in the person of Jesus himself. That would be the parenthesis. And I'm the hour. <laughs> I'm, I'm the fulfillment of this. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. This, this hour is coming where true worship, not a false worship or a lesser worship, but a true worship will rule the day, which is worship in both spirit, meaning heart, meaning breath, meaning internal life, the spiritual life, and truth. The truth of God, the eternal, timeless, absolute truth of God for the father. The rest of the verse says for the father is seeking such people to worship him. If you were not here last week or if you didn't watch the service online, I'd encourage you to to go back and watch because we're not going to review this week. We're going to keep pressing forward. But I believe personally that every word of this verse is important and, and we need to draw life and understanding out of it. So I encourage you to clear a couple minutes and go watch that from last week. This morning we're going to focus most of our time on three words in verse 23 here. And that is the idea of worshiping the Father. The true worshipers will worship the Father. These were the only words we didn't slow down and unpack last week. Because they might seem obvious. And I would submit to you, they're not only not obvious, they're the whole heart of true worship. Last week was just the intro to this idea, the worship 
of God the Father. And what I want us to do first is really just focus on the word worship. What is word, what does the word worship really mean? Because I think worship can mean a lot of things to us. If we described worship or defined worship for ourselves, it might not be the definition that the creator of worship intended. Does that make sense? Right? Our definition is under his authority of his definition, right? Because for some of us, when we say worship, we might mean going to a place. We might mean going to a place on Sunday mornings. Worship might have everything to do with a steeple and stained glass and tradition. Some of us might have grown up where worship meant communion or worship meant robes or worship meant someone who talked really slow. Worship might mean a a certain genre or age of music. This week, an album was re-released from 20 years ago, and I'm listening to these songs that I think are new. And it's like, these songs are 30 years old. That's twice as old as my kids. What? Wait, wait a second. These are old songs now. I'm old. Oh, wait, I'm not worshiping anymore. <laughs> now I'm grieving. And for some of us, worship is whatever the newest song is. Not 30 years old, 30 minutes old. And then for some, it's no, I want to know the songs of the church. I want to know the traditional songs, which when we say that, usually we're talking about songs that are about 100 years old in the 2,000-year life cycle of the church. So before you pat yourself on the back too much about being traditional, you're still pretty modern in the grand scheme of things. Just saying. So if we define worship by a place or a, a style or a setting, I think we've completely missed the boat of the creator of worship's definition. This word, like so many words in the scriptures, is a picture word, which has to do, there's two elements to the word worship. One is a posture, a posture that, that many scholars believe is like a bowing down posture. And the second half of the picture is the word to kiss. The picture of someone bowing down and kissing the ground is the picture of the word worship or to it's really the word it's it's the phrase to kiss towards in ancient uh Egyptian art we see uh, uh leaders traveling through town and all of the the uh the citizens are blowing kisses at the emperor or at the pharaoh they're blowing kisses that is a biblical picture of worship right now, we, we don't typically bow down. That, that's not something that Americans do. We don't have a king or queen anymore, so we don't do that, right? But that idea is revealed in our culture when we're asking a human being to spend the rest of their life with us. It's, it's honorable that a man would take a knee, right, to humble himself and say, of all the human beings on planet... I think you're the only one crazy enough to spend the rest of your life with me. Please, God, please. Will you settle for me? So romantic, right? I should work for Hallmark. Um, It's to say I choose you. Right? 
And so this idea of worship is simply the idea. Here's the word. Hear the word. Let this word get into your soul this morning, please. It's the word value. It's the word value. To worship is to assign value to something. Which means worship by itself is not actually sacred. Worship is something we do every single day in all of life. It's something that atheists do. Every time a non-believer pulls into a Starbucks drive through and says, this liquid that I will consume is worth $7, they are worshiping. Worship is just assigning value. And we do it all day long, every day. It's the idea of what is it worth to you? Those of you who've been in sales, right? What is something worth? It's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it, right? And there are things that you would think are worth the money that you spend on them that I would say that's not worth it to me. And there are things that I would say are worth spending money on that you would say that's not worth it to me, right? Because we are all hardwired from our creation to be value mathematicians every minute of every day. Every decision we make is because we believe it's worth it. And when we make that decision, it does cost us something, Sometimes it costs us financially. Sometimes it just costs us our time. Sometimes it costs us our heart or our attention or our focus. But we make decisions every day about what something's worth and it costs us something. The ancient Puritans, some of you have heard me say this before. The ancient Puritans refused to use the English word worship. They called it worthship. It is time for a moment of worthship, meaning we're realigning our hearts to what's most valuable. I love that. Our worthship. What is it worth to us? I went to, uh, I went and got my hair trimmed on Friday and I walked in and all of the barbers looked at my shoes and started laughing. All four of them. I'm like, and I just had on a normal pair of Adidas. They weren't weird. Like they were just normal shoes. I'm like, did I step in something? Like, I don't smell anything. Do I have COVID? No. Um, just kidding. Um, I'm like, what are you looking at? And they're like, well, the last pastor who walked in here an hour ago had on a pair of $3,000 Louis Vuittons. And I'm like, are they hiring? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just... <laughs> I cracked myself up. Um, no. Actually, I, I'll be super. I wasn't going to say. What actually went through my mind is, man, I hope these guys aren't unbelievers. And I hope that that's not what they saw as a representation of the value proposition of a worshiper. But anyways, um, that wasn't the point. They show me the pictures of these shoes that he was wearing. And I got to be honest with you. I think. Cool shoes are cool, right? They're the ugliest pair of shoes I've ever seen in my life. But there was a moment where that dude 
either added those shoes to his cart online or was in a store and picked them up and went to check out. And they said, that's whatever it was, 2890, whatever. And he said, that's worth it to me. Right? And you probably think that's crazy. And some of you spend more money on eating out than three grand every month. Right? Because we make choices about what's something worth to us. That's worship. True worship is saying there's nothing more worthy of my attention and my affection and my passion and my allegiance and my glory than God Almighty. True worship says he alone is worthy to be praised. David uh, wrote in Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. When we come to the checkout stand of worship, the checkout person says, here's what God is due. Glory. And here's the deal, y'all. We get entitlement. We're Americans, right? He's entitled to be worshipped. And he's entitled to no less. He deserves no less. Because there's none like him. He alone is worthy to be praised. Worship is assigning value and there's no greater worth in every single person who's ever lived is a worshiper. I love what Paul David Tripp said. He said, worship isn't first an activity. Worship is first our identity. It is who we are. We are worshipers, whether we try to be, want to be, or not. He, he went on to say, by God's design, we are worshipers. And that means everything you and I do and say is a product of worship. The question is not, are we worshipers? The question is, are we true worshipers? Are we transformed worshipers? Are we worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth? Because around us, every day, we see worship. As a matter of fact, I want to show you some images of good worship. I want you to watch a short clip. It's about 10 seconds long. Go ahead. I want you to see this is some good worship. Spirit. Focus. Loving and learning. That's worship. That's not true worship. But that's worship. So I I got that clip from Pastor Craig Rochelle. And this is what he said about that. Hear me with your hearts, church. He said that is good worship of a bad God. But on far too Sunday mornings, too many Sunday mornings, and in far too many churches, what we see every week is bad worship of a good God. If we have the greatest story that's ever been told... 
then where should the world see true exaltation than among the people of God? If worship is happening every moment of every day all around us, then what we have the opportunity to be in the world is a beacon of true worship. Which is not generic worship. It's not generic deciding what it's worth or what's not worth it and what the value is. It's worship of the Father. It's worship of God and God alone. The hour is coming when the true worshipers will not just worship. They'll know what they're worshiping. They'll know who they're worshiping. Their worship will be of God and God alone. And in the meantime, we limp forward as divided, broken worshipers who constantly have a break in our math algorithm where our values continue to be manipulated by the things of the world and by our own flesh. And we continue to long for that great day when finally we will see how worthy he is. And the song of that day will be Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And in the meantime, everything around us screams at us and says, I'm worth it. And and transformation of ordinary worshipers to true worshipers is the realignment of our value. He alone is worthy to be praised. It's those moments, it's those glimpses of clarity, those gifts of the Holy Spirit where we see he alone is good. I haven't shared this story in a long time. I didn't plan on saying this, but (laughs) those of you who are parents in the room, can you go back to the moment you first held your, your firstborn child? Is there any moment more powerful in the human existence than that? The Sunday after Garrett was born, I got up to lead worship, and one of the songs that we were doing that Sunday was a song by David Crowder called You Alone. And I started leading, not just singing in my heart, like I'm leading this lyric. You alone are Father, and you alone are good. You alone are good. I just experienced the goodest moment I've ever had on planet Earth. But there's none like him. There's none worthy to be praised. The best thing in this world is just a glimpse of how worthy he is to be praised. He alone is good. It's the the mantra of my whole life is to say as often and as clearly as I can that I believe that only Jesus can satisfy the longings of the human heart, which means he alone is worth it, (laughs) which means he alone is worthy, which means he is the highest value. The true worshipers will worship the Father, which means these moments of worship are not about showing up late and watching the band do songs. So I know we're not a very vocal church, but that's a good place to say amen. So our staff has told me before, I think you should actually teach our church how they're supposed to be preached to. 
This is not in a condescending way, not in a bad way. Like this is supposed to be participatory. True worship of the people of God gathering together in a moment, in a place to sing and exalt and hear and pray to and preach about the only one who's worthy is more than being a spectator. It's worship of the Father, the God and Father of all creation. Which means (laughs) that true worship, true worship, is all about him. And it's not about me. It means it's not about you either. It's all about him. This story that that Jesus is teaching us about true worship in the next several weeks as we're going to zoom back and, and get the setting. Some of you might see at the beginning of your version of the Bible that, that this chapter begins with the header The woman at the well. And let's just be super clear. This is not a story about a woman. And this is not a story about a well. This is not even a story about worship. This is a story about a holy God who is worthy to be praised. Just like every other story that's ever been told in all of creation. Because there would be no creation without his worth. He's worthy to be praised. And there's a lot in this story. There's there's beauty in this story about racial reconciliation and about the value of women that we'll talk about more. But let's just make no mistake. This isn't about her. And this isn't about us. It's all about him. So if you've got your Bibles or whatever, if you're scrolling on your device, look up at verse number 16. We'll, we're going we're gonna to get there in a second. This conversation with Jesus, with this woman, he's talked about that there's this water, this living water, that she'll never grow thirsty if she tastes of this water. And she's like, man, let's, let's crack open some of that stuff. Give me, give me some of that water. And verse 16 is where we'll pick up just for today's sake. Jesus said to her, okay, go call your husband. Which is, a, which is not him setting her up. That, that is an honorable, and Jesus is kind of obligated culturally and socially to assume that she's married, even though he knew better. Because there just wasn't such a thing in this day and time as single women. Because women were, were so devalued and so marginalized, they couldn't earn an income on their own unless they sold their bodies. And so if you weren't single, you were about to get married. And if your husband passed away, you were going to get remarried really quick. And technically, again, we'll talk more. I'm getting ahead of myself. But technically, men never spoke to women, let alone about faith. Jewish men did not speak to their wives about Yahweh. That's how disrespected women were in the eyes of the day. And so when Jesus says, go get your husband, this isn't just him being like, hey, look what I know. I'm fixing to punk you. Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband, period. Please change the subject. <laughs> That's not in the text. But she's like, look over here. Like, change the subject. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, Don't! Straight up Homer Simpson. 
She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) You think? And then she changes the subject to controversy and tradition and preference. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you, meaning Jewish believers, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, here's this phrase again, we worship the Father. And to say neither is, is, the, is the best way to grammatically translate this from Greek into English. But what it really is implied is not that neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. It's that neither place will have worship relegated to it. In other words, we would say both on this mountain and in Jerusalem and in everywhere else. That's what the Greek is trying to say here. Worship's no longer limited to a place. The hour is coming and is now here because of the cross of Jesus Christ and because of his resurrection. Worship is not something we go to. Let me say that again. Worship is not something we go to. It's not a place. It's not a scheduled event. And we call this a worship service because we don't want it to just be church. But here's the thing. It can't be just church if there's worship taking place. Does that make sense? It's no longer limited to a a spot we show up to. Worship's no longer about a place. And he's also telling her, worship is no longer about our preferences. Because at this time in history, a whole lot of Jewish worship wasn't stuff that God ever told them to do. It was stuff they turned it into based on their traditions, their preferences. Much of how the Samaritans viewed worship at this point wasn't based on what God said. It's just what their families always did. And here's the thing about worship that's based on my preferences. That means it's worship of self. If worship is defined by my preferences, that means worship is about me. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father. Which means it's not about my preferences. One of the saddest, scariest, strangest things to me is that we exist just in the last, never in the 2,000 year history of the church have we ever offered different styles of worship so that people can go to the style that they prefer. And I'm not blasting churches who do that. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm not saying that they're going to answer to God for that. I'm just telling you, as long as I'm the pastor here, we're not going to cater to your whims because true worship is not about us. The fact that people bounce from church to church, do you know that the statistics are that every five years a church has a 50% turnover in attendance? And most of those people don't run from God or fall into sin or drop out of church. For sure, that's a part of the statistic. Most of those people just go find a church that scratches their itch a little better. As though corporate worship is about our itch. 
We forget this isn't about us. Like, if for real he would, like, express his manifest glory for a second, we'd be like, uh, I prefer a different style of your throne. The audacity. Right? Here's the thing. His throne's probably pretty gaudy. And I'm kind of minimalistic, right? So I could be like, mm, God, you need like somebody from Apple's marketing department to like tone this down. That sounds ridiculous, right? That sounds absurd. And that's how the rest of the world who doesn't have access to the church body like we do in America, that's how they think of us, how we pick churches. So you dig the dress code at this church versus this church. You dig the style of the music. You dig the money they've spent on kids programming. True worship isn't about our preferences. Because it's not about us. It's about the only one who's worthy to be praised. It also means true worship isn't about our past. When she talks about how her fathers had worshipped and how Jesus' fathers had worshipped, she's talking about hundreds and hundreds of years of history. And what we're experiencing in our day, in our generation, is the most rapid changes in the way the church does worship that we've ever seen in 2,000 years. Things are changing. Because the world that the church exists in is rapidly changing. Those of you who were alive on September 11th, I want you to think about how differently your life looked. You did not pull out your iPhone and stream live video footage. Is that bizarre to you? Most of you didn't text anybody that day because it took so long to go, did you hear what, forget I'm calling them, right? Like, forget I'm calling them. Life is changing, the world is changing. And so the way we define worship cannot be, this is all how we've always done it. Oh, I can't work, we've never worshiped that way before. True worship isn't about our past, our traditions. True worship is not based on our personalities. And true worship is not based on a person. I love that she uses, she doesn't say, I've been taught that we're supposed to worship on this mountain. I love that she mentions their fathers. Because for a lot of us, we've defined worship around people. Oh, I like that person. I'll worship now. You feel me? Let me say it a lot more clearly. True worship is not about a pastor. The cancer of the American church's worship of celebrity preachers has destroyed the foundation of true worship. 
if my heart stops beating today, this church will march on until Jesus comes again because it is not about me. He will be worthy to be praised. Whether I'm here today, gone tomorrow. Here's the thing. Do you all know how bizarre it is that I've got to be your pastor for 10 years? I grew up leaving every 18 to 24 months from where I was. I never lived anywhere longer than that. I thought that's how life was supposed to look. And that's how ministry looked like early for me. It's nuts to me that we've been here 12 and a half years. I've never been anywhere 12 and a half years. Like we've lived in the same house for nine years, y'all. You know how weird that is for me? I can't believe God's let me stay here. But you know what I really can't believe? I can't believe I haven't messed this up yet. I can't believe I haven't flamed out in failure and utter ruin. If your faith is driven or fed by me, listen, you are selling yourself so tragically short. And the reason that a lot of people are out of the church today is because their eyes were on a person or a pastor instead of on the only one worthy to be praised. We've got to get our eyes off people. I'm not deserving. I'm not worthy. I'm not entitled to be followed. He alone is worthy to be praised. And if you ever decide to leave here and go somewhere else and find somebody that's cooler, hipper, smarter, whatever, don't love him either. Love Jesus. I mean, love him. You know what I mean? I'm not saying don't. Don't boo him. (laughs) Or me. True worship is not about a place or about our preferences or our past, our personalities, about a person or about a pastor. True worship is worship of the Father. Now I want to connect the dots of worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. Those of you who were here last week, we're circling back to that idea again. And here's, here's the dots I want to connect, okay? The word spirit in the scripture, if you don't remember from last week, is the word breath. So I want us to go back to Genesis. God spoke and it was. God said, let there be, and there was. God said, let there be, and there was. God said, let there be, and then God formed man from the dust of the ground. And we were really cool looking dirt. But then Yahweh breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then... And only then did man become a living soul. When we worship in breath, our breath is returning to its origin story. Which means worship, and by the way, God calls himself a capitalist spirit as well. God is spirit. So worship in spirit is literally God exalted of God. True worship is so much not about us that it's not even by us. 
Please tell me somebody got a light bulb there. That's worship in spirit. Now let's talk about truth. <laughs> he alone is truth. Right? And Jesus literally is like, uh, my name. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so yet again, true worship is not, it's not just not about us. It's not by us. It's us not saying, all right, I'm going to reorient my value system. It's God, exalted of God within his people, where he reorients our love and our learning of himself, that he alone is worthy. And, and what the people of God are, are called to do is have that reorienting work done by God in us that then overflows out of us. So we don't work up worship. It's something he does in us. And when we respond, understanding who he is, it is his gift. Just like breath comes from God, and just like Jesus is truth, true worship comes from him. I do want to say this one more time, and I know I said this last week. True worship is not about a mountain, and it's not about a venue, right? Um, some of my pastor friends who've seen pictures of our model, they're like, dude, that's so conducive to worship. And I'm like... I don't like that phrase. It, I get what it means. But conducive to worship kind of means we need our venue to orient around us for us to be able to worship well. Does that make sense? No, this is just an update, a remodel. <laughs> It'll be that style in 15 minutes. Have you seen how quick the world's changing? It's just stuff. It's just chairs and carpet. Does that make sense? It's not about a venue. And here's where I want to park in good grief amount of time. Um, hang with me here, please. Worship is not about music. Worship music isn't worship. At its best, like at its highest hope, worship music can be a vehicle to worship. True worship is not limited to music. And there's never been a time in the history of the church that we thought worship was music until this little recent part of our story. And when we take something as grand and all-inclusive as worship and we just cram it down to music, it really easily orients around our preferences. Because now it's about taste, style, tradition. It's not, I'll be honest, man. I, Trevor, I mean this very compassionately. I'm really glad that whatever went wrong, went wrong this morning. If, if you are watching this and didn't see worship, I don't know what happened, but it was clunky. And for those of you who weren't in the room yet, um, it started off... I don't know if something was wrong with the in-ears or whatever. I love that. That like that's a gift from the Lord today. Because whatever happened electronically had nothing to do with the glory of God. With how worthy he is to be praised. This idea that I'm waiting for music to start so that I can worship. 
the subtitle of a book that changed my life about 20 years ago is this. Worship is a way of life. True worship is a way of life. My brother Mark poured his heart out to me. He's like, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 isn't just a short, easy verse for little kids to learn. Like it's the lesson that the American church needs to hear and embrace. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whether there's any guitars playing or not, or any organs playing or not, or any screens or any hymnals, Whatever you do, when you pour your cup of coffee on Monday morning, when you drive to work in Metroplex rush hour Monday morning, when you clock in and log in in your cubicle on Monday morning, when you sit through another droning on staff meeting about nothing, when you get thrown into quarantine because your least favorite coworker coughed in your face. When you pack your kids' lunches for school. When you do the laundry for the thousandth time in a week. When you decide to extend peace and grace to your spouse instead of fighting for what they just said. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's true worship. And here's the thing. If we are living a way of life of true worship, then when we come together and sing songs, it'll just be an explosion of true worship. Not the beginning of it. The fact is, our countdown clock lies to you every Sunday. Worship doesn't start at 10.30. The gathering of the church starts at 10.30. But worship is the full-time job description of the followers of Jesus. It's possible... To take an English exam to the glory of God. I don't know how, but it's in the Bible. For sake of time, I'll I'll stop here this morning. Yesterday, um... We had a pretty cool moment. We, we welcomed a new family member into our family. Um, Grace, can you put that picture up? It's like tomato, but without the tuh. Um, so my middle son has been ruined by Temple Ministries. And it's your fault. I don't know why or where, but somehow my middle son started getting this desire to restore an old vehicle. 
And as a father who desires to be present in the life of his kids, I couldn't have been less happy. Because I'm telling you, I know how to change a tire. And I know how to take my car in for an oil change. And that's about it. <laughs> like, man, is he really getting into this? And so years ago, he started hanging out with James some. And then God brought Charles into our life. Go Gators. And... um these men have fed this passion and this desire. And this kid saved every penny he's made his whole life. Been saving up and spent hours, hundreds of hours that he should have been doing schoolwork. Hundreds of <laughs> Online learning. Okay. Um, brother been shopping. All right. Finding these trucks, thinking that's the one, and then it would fall through or seem like a shady deal or whatever. And finally found this truck in Waco and uh, Charles was gracious enough to go down to Waco with us last night and because I know nothing I'm just carrying the money I was basically a mule we get there and, and Charles keeps telling me all that matters is if it cranks if we can fix the cosmetic stuff it's just got to crank well here's the problem there's no gas tank there's no fuel tank. So he had to squirt gas into the thingy-majabob up in top of the engine. <laughs> Y'all thought I was kidding when I said I didn't know anything. <laughs> He's like, I got to squirt gas in here while the owner turns it over. And it cranked. And there was no knocking. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Apparently it's a good thing because we bought it. Um, the problem is, you have no idea if it operates if there's not fuel. This morning I just want us to, to settle our hearts into this. There's only one fuel for true worship and it has nothing to do with me my comfort zone my preferences my life story the only fuel for true worship is the glory of a holy God what fuels our loving and our learning what fuels our attention and our affection what fuels our heart's feelings and our mind's focus? What part of that needs to experience a worship transformation? That's what I invite you to examine before the Father right now.